It happened in a millisecond. A movement in the galaxies that should have taken eons occurred in the blinking of an eye. At the Cape Hattie Observatory, a young astronomer sat stunned, reaching an instant too late to activate the camera that might have recorded it. The splintering of three constellations that produced the dark, glowing star. From Capricorn, Cancer and Leo, pieces had suddenly flown, finding each other with magnetic certainty, melding into a pulsating, galactic ember. He feared he was alone with it, but in fact he was not. For from the very bowels of the earth there came a distant sound. It was the sound of voices, human, yet not growing in devout cacophony with the heightening potency of the star. In caves, basements, and open fields they had gathered, midwives to the birth, some 20,000 strong. With hands joined and heads bowed, their voices rose until the vibration could be heard and felt everywhere. It was the sixth month, the sixth day, the sixth hour, the precise moment predicted by the Old Testament when Earth history would change. The Omen by David Seltzer Abridged by Jeremy Osborne Read by Owen Teal In his first-class seat aboard the 747 bound from Washington to Rome, Robert Thorne routinely fastened his seatbelt, preoccupied with what awaited him below. The telegram he'd received in Washington was 12 hours old, and by now whatever had happened was over. He would find Cathy in a hospital bed nursing their newborn child or in a state of despair for having lost it once again. The plane touched down on the runway. He remained in his seat as others groped for their carry-ons, crushing toward the door. He would be taken through customs into a waiting car. It was the nicest part of coming back to Rome, for here he was something of a celebrity. As the president's economic advisor, he was chairman of the World Economy Conference, which had been moved from Zurich to Rome. The initial four-week agenda had droned on now for close to six months, and in that time the paparazzi had begun to notice him. The rumour spreading that in a few years hence, he himself would be a US presidential hopeful. As the taxi stopped short in front of the darkened hospital de Santo, Father Spelletto gazed down from his second-floor office window. Knowing in an instant that the man bounding out was Robert Thorne, the rugged jaw and grey in temples were familiar from newspaper photos, even the attire and gait seemed familiar as well. It was satisfying that Thorne looked every inch of what he should. Plainly, the choice had been right. Drawing his robes around him, the priest stood and, without expression, moved quietly to the door. Thorne's footsteps could already be heard below, echoing as they moved vigorously across the bare, tiled floor. Mr. Thorne, 
Below him, Thorn turned, his eyes searching upward in the darkness. Yes, I am Father Spoleto. I sent you. The priest moved into a shaft of light and craned down the stairwell. There was something in his movement, the silence that surrounded it that signaled all was not well. Is the child born? asked Thorn. Yes. My wife? She's resting. The priest was at the base of the stairwell now, and his eyes met Thorn's. Something's gone wrong, said Thorn. The child is dead. There came an awesome silence, as Thorn stood paralyzed as though hit by a body blow. The priest watched, unmoving, as the man before him walked stiffly to a bench and sat for a long moment, then bowed his head and wept. Throughout the empty tiled corridors the sound of weeping echoed, and the priest waited his turn to speak. Your wife is safe, he said, but she will be unable to bear another child. It will destroy her, whispered Thorn. You could adopt, she wanted her own. In the silence that followed, the priest stepped forward. His features were coarse and composed, the eyes filled with compassion. Only a trickle of perspiration betrayed the tension hidden within. You love her very much, he said. Thorn nodded. Then you must accept God's plan. From the shadows of a darkened corridor an aged nun appeared, her eyes imploring the priest to join her. They came together, whispering for a moment in Italian before she departed, and the priest turned again to Thorn. There was something in his eyes that made Thorn stiffen. God works in mysterious ways, Mr. Thorn. He held out his hand, Thorn rising, compelled to follow. The maternity ward was dark and clean, the smell of babies renewing the sense of loss that throbbed deep in Thorn's stomach. Moving to a glass partition, the priest paused, waiting as Thorn hesitantly approached and gazed down at what lay on the other side. It was a child, newborn, a child of angelic perfection, with thick black hair tousled above deep-set blue eyes. It stared upward, instinctively finding Thorn's eyes. It is a foundling, said the priest. Its mother died as your own child, in the same hour. Confused, Thorn turned to him. Your wife needs a child, continued the priest. The child needs a mother. Thorn slowly shook his head. We wanted our own. If I may suggest, it very much resembles. And Thorn looked again, realizing it was true. The child's coloring was the same as Cathy's. The signora need never know, implored the priest. And from Thorn's sudden silence, he took heart. Thorn's hand had begun to tremble, and the priest took it, infusing him with confidence. Are there relatives? None. Around them, the empty corridors hissed with silence, a stillness so dense that it was assaulting on the ear. I am in full authority here, said the priest. There will be no records. No one could know. 
Thorn averted his eyes, desperate with indecision. Could I see my own child? he asked. What's to be gained? implored the priest. Give your love to the living. For the sake of your wife, Signor, God will forgive this deception. And for the sake of this child, who will otherwise have no home, his voice fell to silence, for no more needed to be said. The Thorns were both of Catholic parentage, but neither of them was religious. Thorn himself did not take seriously, as Cathy did, the fact that their son Damien was never christened. Cathy was intending one day to make sure it was done right. But that day never came, for they were swept into a whirlwind of distractions and the christening was forgotten. The economy conference had ended and they moved back to Washington, Thorne resuming his duties as a presidential advisor and becoming a political entity unto his own. The Thorne family became familiar to readers of national magazines all over the country. They were photogenic, they were rich, and they were on the way up. And more important, they were often in the company of the president. It came as no surprise when Thorne was appointed the ambassador to the court of St. James. In London, they took up quarters in a 17th-century mansion at Pettiford. For household duties, there was a staff of day help and a permanent couple, the Hortons, who acted as cook and chauffeur. To entertain Damien when Cathy was occupied with official chores, there was an English girl named Chessa. She was bright and full of play, and adored Damien as though he were her own. The child himself was growing into an artist's rendering of what a human child should be. Three years since his birth, his health and strength were phenomenal. He had a kind of composure about him. Horton occasionally took him out on errands, enjoying his silent presence, amazed at the child's fascination with everything that went on outside. He's like a little man from Mars, Horton once remarked to his wife, like he was sent here to study the human race. He's the apple of his mother's eye, she responded. Wouldn't do you no good to be heard saying that. I'm not downing him, just that he is a bit unusual. The only other troubling aspect about Damon was that he rarely used his voice. Cathy once inquired about this to her physician, but the doctor was most reassuring. He was only three and a half, and Albert Einstein didn't speak until he was four. He was in every way the perfect child the appropriate issue of the perfect marriage of Robert and Cathy Thorne. Haber Jennings was a paparazzi. He researched his subjects with the thoroughness of Jonas Salk, seeking the cure for polio. Lately, he had become fixated on the ambassador to London, he shuffled through piles of papers looking for the engraved invitation. It was to be a birthday party. The fourth birthday of the child. From all the poorest parts of London, busloads of children were already on their way. 
The entire estate had been turned into a sumptuous carnival. The lawns were teeming with colour and life, small bodies running between circus tents and carousels. Photographers ran everywhere, out of their minds with greed. But to Jennings, there was nothing there to photograph. Only the facade, the brick wall that everyone else took for reality. What's the matter, mate? Run out of film? It was Hobie talking, the stringer for the News Herald, feverishly reloading beside the hot dog table as Jennings casually approached and took a handful of food. Just waiting for his canonization, Jennings replied with distaste. How's that? I don't know if we've got just the heir to the Thorn Millions here or Jesus Christ himself. You're a fool to miss out, man. It's not often you'll get into a place like this. Why bother? What I need, I can buy from you. You want an exclusive, do you? No other way. Well, good luck, then. This is the most private family this side of Monaco. The exclusive. That was the Jennings dream.